Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Shavisa Woods. Her new book is 100 Times, A Memoir of Sexism. Recounting her experiences with sexist discrimination, sexual harassment, and sexual violence beginning in childhood through the present, this critically acclaimed and award-winning author lays out clear and unflinching personal vignettes that build in intensity as the number of times grows. Individually and especially taken as a whole, these stories amount to powerful proof that sexual violence and discrimination are never just one-time occurrences, but part of a battle all women face every day. It's a remarkable book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Shavisa Woods. Shavisa, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed our last conversation. I think it was last year when your book of short stories, Things to Do, when you're in goth country, which is when you're great, goth in the country, when you're a goth in the country, rather, which is a great book of short stories. If any of our listeners don't know or haven't read it, I, I would I couldn't say enough good about it. And this is your first work of nonfiction we have here is 100 Times, A Memoir of Sexism. Yes. So here I, I'll give you my when I was when I was I, my impression when I was reading it and. and so these stories you recount of sexism, sexual discrimination, sexual violence, sexual assault, you tell them in, in you, re, you recount them in a way I can almost only describe as clinical. Mm-hmm. I mean, you talk about your feelings that you recount at the time, but you don't do a whole lot of sort of editorializing. And it almost seems, it seems intentional in the sense of, I mean, it seems like you're trying to say, look, this is matter of fact. It happens all the time. I, I'm not like I'm not sort of uh, I'm recounting things that really happened, and you, you tell them in a way that's very. Uh, I mean, the writing is 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 elegant as your writing always is, but I mean, it it does seem like uh, it, it does seem very kind of clinical at times. Is that intentional? Absolutely. Um, what I've done is written vignettes. And I just wrote down exactly what happened. I didn't write down. And a lot of these are sexual assaults. Um, Some of them are instances of discrimination as well. But I just wrote down exactly what happened. I didn't write why I thought it happened or what I thought the man's motivations might have been or how I should have reacted or how I feel about it now. Because I thought if I did that, the book could go on forever. And I also thought um, the reason I wrote this is because so often when I'm having a discourse with men about sexism, we start to get into the weeds about why this really happened, whether or not it was sexism, what the men's motivations were. And, you know, I don't know 100% certainly what their motivations were, what caused this, but I do know exactly what happened. And so what I was, what I was trying to do with this book was just say, look, this is the reality of my life. This is what it has looked like. And I put all of these down because I think that these things are all related to sexism. And I sort of wanted to be able to hand this book to someone who might be skeptical that sexism still has a near constant impact in the lives of women and just say, look at these things that happened. These are absolutely true. This is what really happened. And you tell me what you think and why you think they happened. 
I wanted to leave it up to the audience to decide. I read a piece last year. I think it was in The Atlantic or something. And the author was arguing that when conservatives and liberals talk about racism, conservatives think about racism in terms of intention, right? Like, so if I was intentionally trying to target someone, then, then that is racist. And liberals tend to think of it more in outcome and effects. And so, you know, you might vote as a conservative legislator from Georgia or something to, to because you, you say, I'm, I just believe in small government. And so you, you vote to defund several programs, ones that disproportionately affect African Americans. You say, well, I didn't mean to disproportionately affect them or something. It, it, the, the the liberal is going to say, well, I mean, the, the your intention isn't as big as the out as as the impact. Like, and and when you're in systems, this is what often happens. It sounds like there's a similar thing that guys tend to it, it, when in these dialogues you're having, almost just even if they're not conservative guys about sexism, tend to think about think like conservatives do politically about racism. Well, I mean, look at the intention and look at the you know and. And, and of course, maybe even it was bad behavior, but it's like something, is there something threatening you think about admitting to sexism or, or it, it, that guys want to sort of editorialize and, and, and go to intention so much? Oh, completely. And I think, um, some aspects, I'm very grateful to the Me Too movement and I probably wouldn't have written this book without it. And I'm very glad, um, that the Me Too movement is occurring and still gaining momentum. There are some aspects of it though, that I think need to begin to expand away from solely focusing on punishment and persecution of individual men um, and start to talk about the larger systemic issues and the cumulative impact that sexism has on women. I think a lot of men that I talk to, yeah, they, they want to talk about their own intentions and whether or not they're good or bad people, but they're not taking seriously enough the cumulative impact that this has on women worldwide as a whole. And a lot of men will also talk to me when I'm talking about sexism and the discrimination and the epidemic levels of assault and sexual violence that I've experienced. They will start to recount one time when a woman was aggressive with them or the fact that women can be abusers in relationships emotionally and physically, um, or that women can be bad or that women can dislike men as well. And I, I always tell them, you know, saying that sexism exists is not saying that all women are perfect or that women cannot be abusers. What we need to start doing though, is looking at certain statistics. There's no reverse equivalent of sexism. There's no such thing as reverse sexism. For instance, um, one of the number one causes of death for women between the ages of 15 and 55 worldwide is male violence. So usually it's violence from their intimate partners, usually when they're trying to leave their intimate partners. There's no reverse equivalent of that. Women are not killing their male partners at epidemic rates. They're hardly doing it at all. Does it happen occasionally? Yes. But it's not an epidemic that is actually causing this population to have a shorter lifespan. Yeah. And I think of, of, yeah, any human being, right. Can be a, a victim or a victimizer, but it's when it's systemic, right? Like it, it, like you're saying, it's not, yeah, a mother may have a tremendous amount of power over her child. Uh, that mother who's a poor woman and, 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 you know, a poor woman of color or something, but that power she has over that child doesn't equate to uh, agency in a systemic sense, right? Like, I mean, it, it just doesn't, you know, people, it's weird that people sometimes try to make the analogy between, you know, the kind of power an agent has in one situation and then what the what, what systemic stuff, how it works out. 
Absolutely. And, you know, some of there is some overlap with racism um, with this. Like, I think I was having a conversation with an old friend of mine from my hometown several years ago, and he kept talking to me about white privilege. And he's from a very poor area and he's had a very difficult life. He kept saying, I'm not privileged because I'm white. I wasn't born into any privilege. I'm poor. I went to the army. I worked in oil fields. I don't have any money. How am I privileged? And I said to him simply, would you want to go through everything that you've had to go through again, but be black and do it? Do you think there would have been a difference in your experience? Would it have been harder? That's your white privilege. The fact that it was slightly easier because you were white and that you weren't discriminated against based on your race. So when we talk about sexism, there are some similarities. It's like, would you want to do everything that you had to do and be a woman? Do you think there are any additional obstacles that would be put in place that men do not have to face? That's systemic sexism. Yeah, I'm struck by a story you told that when your first book got published, I think with Seven Story Press, that you said almost to, uh, uh, you know, the number, every guy you told... And I'm guessing these are guys who you're friendly with, you know, these, you talk about, Hey, I just want to be in a community of artists and, 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 you know, like you'd be a colleague. These are guys that, I mean, my, my guess is you saw in some collegiate fashion, they would all say, Oh, if you got it published, maybe they'll publish mine. And, you know, and then ask you to sort of do them favors. Like th- there was this sort of like entitlement sense and this sort of patronizing sense. And it's just, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, this is bizarre. I mean, <laughs> this behavior is just weird, right? I mean, like, uh, and you give that as this incredible example of the, the way the systemic stuff subtly works out. And one guy even used your name again without your permission saying, because uh, you said, oh, I could take a look at the book. And rather than send it to you, he just sent it to your publisher or whatever and said that I told him that you you said you recommended it or whatever. And, you, and you're frustrated because he's, he's, it's not like you've got favors to cash in or anything like that or all this political capital. He did it without your permission. And it just he did it sen- before my book was even published yet, right after I had signed my first contract with this press. Yeah, the sense um, of entitlement kind of is it, it, mind blowing. Yeah, and there, you know, it happened again recently, something even more threatening than that. But what it was, and I, won't, I will say it wasn't all men um, that I talked to. I hate saying hashtag not all men, but you did say you said every guy you talked to, but it was most of them. This actually happened because my mentor, who is an older gentleman who was running a small press and art gallery who was very supportive of me. And he's also a straight man. And he was very congratulatory. Um, I came into his space and he was sitting and talking with a younger writer who was my age, maybe a couple years older than me. Um, and he told this man, you have to congratulate her. She just sold her second book to a much larger press than the press that published her first book. And when he found out it was seven stories press, which is sort of, you know, a pretty well-respected press, they've published Ralph Nader, Octavia Butler, um, Noam Chomsky, just lots of different people, especially the type of people that these sort of intellectual men in their 30s look up to. And then to find out that my book was being published by the press, instead of saying congratulations to me or asking me what my book was about, which I would just sort of expect in polite, casual conversation, he immediately said, oh, wow, they're publishing you. Well, maybe they would publish my novel. And then he immediately went on like a 10 minute long monologue telling me the entire plot of his novel without even asking what my book was about. And I sat there sort of stunned. And when this is happening, I guess these are microaggressions, you know, 
when this is happening, you sort of sit there and you start thinking, why is he treating me this way? What is it about me that would cause him to act this way? And I guess I would ask you, Scott, can you imagine a man reacting that way to you? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, I like don't, a relatively sane person, you know. I, 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 yeah, I'm just trying. I try to think about that when I read that, and I may, I mean, maybe like a narcissistic. T- you know, I mean, I, may, I can't. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine. Yeah, like I have to. I'd have to really. Yeah, no, I can't. I the way you have met, you have had it happen numerous times, over and over, over and again. Over yeah, and the same conversation. So many different men. I, I would have to really imagine a. Any uh, somebody doing that to me, like uh, it'd be it'd be a stretch. And recently I received threatening messages from a man in a very similar situation um, after this book was published. And this isn't even in the book. This kind of thing continues to happen. You know, I wrote 100 times, but now I have like 15 more times since yeah, the book came like, out this, a few months this ago. This is 114. <laughs> yeah, this is 114 or whatever. Um, and it was really scary because this was a man I met at a party about eight years ago. And, um, we were at what in our late, we were, I was 29 and we were drinking at my friend's birthday party outside kind of a punk show slash party. And he read me a funny poem and I said, I really liked it. And then his friend told him that I was a writer and that I had a couple books published. And then he asked if he could be in touch with me and send me some other poems. And I said, sure. And over the years he would send me a couple poems a year and I would actually read them. And when I thought I liked them, I said, Oh, I like that. Like that's, they were sort of funny poems. I didn't think they were mind blowing, but I didn't think they were bad. I liked them. And so we had a little Facebook relationship. And then he, um, you know, I would talk to him maybe once a year for four or five years and then maybe not hear from him again for two years. And then he recently sent me a random Facebook message asking me um, if I would, you know, read his entire manuscript and and send it to my press to see if the press would publish his poetry. And my press publishes like political work work and his poetry is just not that. And I don't know him that well. I've never actually met him in person again. And I just told him, I'm sorry, but like, I wasn't able to do that. Um, and then recently after this book came out and started getting some major press, I got a very threatening message from him. Um, this where in which he called me an old bag and cussed at me and sent me some veiled threats. Um, And I was really scared for a few days. And that was happening to me just because I said, like, I'm sorry, I don't really know you. I don't have time to read your entire manuscript and recommend it to my press. Who says old bag? Which doesn't even publish. Is he like like Archie Bunker? Who says old bag? First (laughs) off, you're pretty young. (laughs) Yeah, I'm 37. This insult isn't hitting me, but um, it is disturbing to start getting threats. He doesn't know you. Yeah, yeah. It's bizarre. Because I will act as a conduit to a man's art who I barely know. You tell several childhood stories of bullying, you know, one incredibly painful experience where you had this friend who who initially stuck up for you when another friend was awkward about you wanting to be a boyfriend or girlfriend as a child. Oh, and yeah. then, But then later you go over his house and his friend shoots you with a BB gun and... <laughs> And his friend kind of blames you because his dad was forced to beat, beat him or something afterwards on a hot metal picnic table in summer. And you're like, how is that my problem? The guy shot me. I mean, you know, like, I, I mean, it seems that that you, you know, there's like a continuum where some of these boys you thought like like one is an ex-boyfriend who now you still see casually socially when you go back home, who was really crazy when you broke up with him and felt 
possessive and, and, and threw a desk at a teacher and would still keep trying to touch you in the halls. And, and you, and you say in the, in the, in the, in this vignette, like, Hey, I just think, what if I had done that stuff? I'd be a crazy bitch. I'd be this, I'd be that. And everybody had sympathy for him because, you know, he really just misses you. Like it's this kind of built in sympathy. And it's almost like a continuum, right? Where some of this, the, the sexism just takes child, what, what can be childhood cruelty channels it. Uh, from one gender to another, you know, and, and, and then some of it, you know, becomes really much more malevolent, right? I mean, it's almost like there's a continuum you narrate in these stories of people that are just sort of, uh, it's like, uh, Hannah Arendt calls the banality of evil, right? You just have to show up in the system and the evil, and other people who actually seem to go beyond the systemic level to, to, to delight in the, in the, in the evil. I mean, is that, is that fair to say that you kind of, there's a continuum of these experiences you have? Absolutely. I think the stories that you're referring to, um, the earlier stories in the book. So the book starts with number one, when I'm age five and it's done in linear order, um, from age five to the present, but the stories you're referring to are sort of age five through about like 16, um, and I think what I realized while I was writing it and maybe just after I had written that section was that I was really revealing the flip side of a coin, um, a side that we don't usually see when we talk about childhood rites of passage. I think what we often see is like rites of passage of boys and particularly straight boys of like having that tomboy friend who lives next door and then starting to feel awkward around girls and going to the phase where like girls aren't allowed. And then coming out of that phase and being like, oh, I, girls are allowed because I want to have sex with them and I find them physically attractive. But the opposite side of that coin for girls often looks like first we have friends with boys and we're valued equally to boys. And then all of a sudden we're told that because we're girls, we're weak, we're stupid, we're unvaluable and unwanted. And then suddenly we're valuable again, but only as sexual objects. So the opposite side of that coin for girls is honestly pretty dark. And doesn't and hurtful and doesn't get talked about a lot. And in my life, that progression actually there's sort of a crescendo in this book where I'm going through that. And then for boys, you often think of like the, asking a girl out for the first time, first big romance, first heartbreak. Boys sometimes spin out and come undone when they have their first heartbreak. But unfortunately, a lot of times for girls, that looks like being the butt of sexual violence or threats because of retaliation, because of female rejection. And in my book. About a year or two after my boyfriend broke up with me and became threatening with me for several years, a boy in the class above me killed the girl that he had had a baby with in high school because she left him and got a new boyfriend. So it actually resulted in murder. Um, when you talk, when you start talking about boys becoming violent and aggressive and destructive because of female rejection in a way that girls aren't really allowed to do. Or if they do, it's handled very differently. There's not much sympathy for that. In my life, I actually saw that turn in to murder, um, which I talked about before is actually a huge epidemic problem. Men killing women when they try to leave the relationship. I saw it happen firsthand when I was 17 for the first time. Yeah. I, I read something recently. It might be the New York times where they were saying that the one thread in all the mass shootings, wherever the ideology is or the story, there's often a misogynistic threat to mm -hmm. in, in the in the shooters, or somebody who melts down. Often, uh, whether or not it, it's explicitly a misogynist kind of attack, like the incel 
group. Like the there have been a lot stuff, of incel yeah. shootings in the it, last few years. Obviously. Yeah, but even even if it's not someone like that, generally there's misogyny in their story somewhere that's not hard to find. Yeah, well, I think that's probably true for most aggressive men. There's misogyny in their story. And then recently we've seen just the blatant white nationalist shooting that also occurred. Um, these shootings are very sad, and it's really hard to sort of watch bigots go out and just attempt to commit genocide and commit genocidal acts against people of color, immigrants, and women over and over again. One of the things that you tell in these early childhood stories that I think I'm I'm sure every woman or most women would say, yeah, we learned similar lessons. You talk about what I learned at this point was if a boy did this to me, this that no one would help. Or if a boy did this, it was legitimized in, in subtle ways. Like there were all these ways in which you were learning the rules of the patriarchal system as a very young child without nobody had to give you the explicit message. It's just the way everybody reacted. You just you kind of figured it out for yourself pretty quickly. Yeah. And I was talking to a male friend recently who actually grew up with me and he read it and he said that he was surprised to see that so much of this was just violence and it wasn't sexual and it wasn't sexual harassment or discrimination or rape. A lot of it was just blatant violence. And I write, there was a particular boy who harassed me repeatedly throughout junior high. Um, And one of the first things he did to me was walk when he was walking past me, when we were alone in the gymnasium, walking back and forth to the bathroom, he just walked up and punched me in my chest. So he punched me in my breasts, weirdly. Um, and when I told on him, the teacher was like, well, kick him in the balls next time. And then told me he probably had a crush on me. And because it was slightly sexualized, I suppose, because of my breasts, I think she read it as his frustration. I had large breasts young with his frustration with me developing larger breasts and not knowing how to react. So he punched me in them, but he left me gasping on the ground. He bruised my body pretty severely. He hurt me very badly. Um, and then, you know, a few months later, like six months later, he knocked me unconscious by hitting me in the head with his history book and everyone witnessed it. And the te- and a male teacher again, did nothing and told me he probably had a crush on me. And again, it doesn't matter why the boy is doing this to me. I'm getting, you know, the crap knocked out of me. The impact on me is very negative and hurtful. Um, so I was given that message repeatedly that if a boy was hurting me, who seemed to like me, that it would be dealt with um, very differently than like if a girl was beating me up or if an adult, you know, it was just handled very weirdly. And what does and that I, set yeah. you have to internalize? Like, okay, uh, these sort of acts of oppressive sort of violence, you should associate with affection. I mean, that's weird. <laughs> and I've heard this from a lot of my female friends. Um, and it started off, you know, the first one seems innocent and maybe it seems cute and funny to people. A boy repeatedly pinching my butt, who's also, we're both five years old and running through the sprinklers in our swimming suits and he's pinching my butt. I didn't like it. I wanted him to stop. And the adults laughed and thought it was funny. So that sort of set in me like the first time that I was told that it's something very common that people think of as very innocent. But it was like if he was pinching my arm and hurting me, if he was pinch, you know, pinching me somewhere else, they might not have laughed. They would have just said, stop it. But because this is sort of sexualized, that makes it acceptable and funny. And I probably liked it, which is a really horrible message to start sending to young girls and boys at such an early age. You tell this other story where I think a a teacher said, a male teacher said something to you, your nipple was sticking out of a shirt or something. You're like six. I mean, you're pretty young. I mean, it was was one of those six. I was in the first grade. Yeah. And he says something like, Oh baby, I see it. And, and you say something interesting. I don't think he was a pedophile or particularly like perverted. I just think 
he, like sexualizing women, even young girls, is so normative that he didn't even think anything of it. No, he. Uh, so what was happening was I was in PE and I was wearing a little tank top and I had no breasts because I'm a six year old child. I had never even thought of that part of my body as being sexual in any way. And I guess my nipple, a child's nipple is sticking out slightly from the sleeve of kind of a baggy tank top because you're so skinny at that point. Everything's baggy on you. And he leaned down to tell me to cover my chest, cover my nipple. And he said, oh, yeah, baby, I can see it. Hubba hubba. Mm-hmm. And, you know. And all the kids started laughing and I'm sitting right next to all of the kids. And then they're all looking at me. And I, it was just this moment where I felt very embarrassed and very confused. And I blushed and like covered myself, but it was sort of like that. Oh, I'm naked. And I didn't even know that was an issue. And the way that he did it is very blatantly sexual harassment of a child. But I think also he just thought it was like a funny joke and maybe probably in his head, it was a less awkward way somehow to tell me, to cover my nipple, which didn't really even need to be addressed because no one noticed it. Because kids, we were five and six years old. We weren't really thinking of each other's nipples that way. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower. Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalker, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. Yeah, I, I'm wondering, you grew up in a sort of, in Ohio, right? Oh, in Illinois. Illinois, I'm sorry. Illinois. And it was a rural, a, a relatively, you know, less urban kind of part. Oh, well, of, I grew up in southern Illinois, which southern, is actually, right. most people don't realize this, but there are parts of Illinois that run south of St. Louis that are just equal to southern Missouri. Southern Illinois and southern Missouri are sort of the same place. Yeah, I grew up in a farm town of about 1,000 people, about an hour and a half south of St. Louis. Yeah, and, and it, it, there's all sorts of stuff that's been written about folks in sort of Rust Belt country and certain parts of the middle of the country where things are uh, economically have been challenging over the years, where, where the social cohesion is, is you know, the, 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 it's, there's not as much sort of social trust. There, certain institutions are uh, struggling and things like that. And I wonder, do you think that adds to the problems you're talking about, to the systemic stuff, like, or, or do you think it just plays out differently or, you know, or, or do you think it makes it worse when there's, 
certain systemic issues around poverty no. and other things like that. No, I don't stuff. think it makes it worse at all. Um, I, there was, there, God, I keep remembering things I didn't put in the book. So the first third of this book, you I would call lived, those like 38.2. The first third of this book, let's be real is, you know, till eight, till I was 18 years old, I lived in Southern Illinois. So the first, you know, third of this book is set in Southern Illinois. Then I moved to St. Louis and for two years I lived in St. Louis. And then all of these things happened in St. Louis. Then I moved to New York. The rest of the book is set in New York. I went to Berlin. I went to Venezuela. I went to Paris. All of the same things happened in Berlin, Venezuela, Paris, New York, rural Illinois, wherever I've traveled, this has happened. And in the book, there's not one section that's bulkier than another. And what's really funny to me is when I talk about things that happened in a rural area to people in New York City. They say, oh, that's because it was like a backwards, conservative, poor area. But then I spoke to one of my friends recently from Sandoval, Illinois, where I grew up, who was explaining this book to a man in the area. And he said, yeah, but that kind of stuff happens in New York City <laughs> all the time. And, she, you know, that's to be expected when you're living someplace like that. Um, <laughs> so it gets kind of ridiculous to me at some point. It's like this happens everywhere. And if you want to talk about the stuff with the kids, people keep saying, oh, but in my liberal school in New York and my wealthy liberal school, this sort of thing wouldn't happen. I was a nanny when I was in my mid twenties for um, a couple in Park Slope. I babysat their like 10 year old boy who was really wonderful. I loved him. And they went to this really, he went to this really posh Park Slope school, which was like had a robotics class. People from the Guggenheim came to visit the students in grade school and talk to them. And I was like, this is unlike anything I ever experienced in my school. This is so nice so liberal, so many opportunities. And I took him to this carnival day. Um, and there was one of those buckets where you could like throw a ball at a target and like an adult sits in the bucket and the kids got to throw a ball at the target and plunge the adult into a pool, a basin of water. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Dunk tank. Yeah. And there was a dunk tank. That's the word for it. And they needed some more adults to volunteer to do the dunk tank. Cause like all the teachers were soaking wet. And I did notice that it was all male teachers who were soaking wet at this point. And this is, of course, just a mixed gender, just a co-ed grade school. And I was there as the babysitter. And I said, oh, I'll volunteer for the dunk tank. This will be fun. I actually don't mind getting wet. I was wearing like romper clothes because I'm there to babysit and play with kids all day anyway. And I volunteered and I stood in line and two female teachers came up to me and told me to ask me to leave the line and said that they thought it would cause too much of a ruckus for me to go into the dunk tank because I had breasts and there are 10 and 11 year old boys here and you know how they are. And then I would have a wet shirt on and that would just be too much for them hmm. for it, for a woman to get wet and have like a wet shirt on in front of 10 year old boys. And I was pissed and I argued with them. And then I finally just rolled my eyes and stepped out of the line because I'm a babysitter and I don't want to cause a problem at this part slope school but they're literally like afraid for women to be in a dunk tank in front of kids in Park Slope because they were they thought that the children would sexualize us, which I think, you know, is more of a problem with the adults than the children, probably. And if the kids did giggle or something or notice that, I think that that could be handled. Yeah, it's interesting because you think about sort of traditional and I use traditional like, you know, religious you know, cultures, you know, where you sort of. 
separate out, you know, the way to deal with sort of male adolescence and all this high testosterone and energy and all these things is, you know, you keep boys and girls very separate and you, you know, you, you know, you know that there's all sorts of problems if there's a lot of mixed interaction. So it becomes very puritanical and rigid. And then it seems like in late modern sort of blue state area, it almost evolves into the same thing, right? It's not religious and traditional, but it's sort of, oh, well, it's, everyone's going to be sexualized and there's all this fear of, 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 you know, you know, it almost becomes a weird cosmopolitan secular version of this, you know, boys and girls are toxic when they meet with each other and (laughs) boys are going to objectify them and we have to keep them apart until they're married, all this stuff. Like, I, I wonder, you know, is there a way that's like less puritanical to talk about these these things in ways that protect women that that help boys deal with their own sexuality you know and don't not objectify and and i don't know, need to be girls. protected from a 10 year old boy looking at me and finding me attractive yeah yeah you know i don't and no one is worried about the girls looking at like muscly men in wet t-shirts because we don't teach people to objectify men in that way um, and the only way to unteach that is to make it okay for women to have bodies. And if you feel attracted to them, that's, you know, that's your feeling, but it doesn't mean that you have access to them because of your feelings. Um, and I was also, you know, I'm wearing like a black band t-shirt and jeans. And suddenly I felt very guilty about something as if I was proposing to do something lewd by saying, I'm going to jump in a, get in a dunk tank at a children's carnival, which is pretty absurd. Um, and I think my point with this is just to say, like, this happens all over the place, even in rich liberal areas. And I think we all need to start looking at the way that we treat women very differently than we treat men, because we're afraid of women's sexuality, which is truly bizarre. In her new Netflix special, Whitney Cummings has this thing where she's talking about how guys are like, look, we're support the Me Too movement. But, you know, the sad thing is now you can't hug a woman at work. You can't <laughs> do this. And she's like, yeah. The reason we have it is you're never supposed to, she's like, guys, I'm sympathetic to you. Like when I walk through an airport, you know, you see a service dog and I love dogs and they're so cute and they, you know, I, you know like, and I want to touch it and I look at that jacket. Oh, I remember, oh, it's working. I can't touch. Like, and I know you like to touch women. We smell good. We're pretty, whatever. You got to, hey, you just can't touch what, like, there's this kind of like, you just got to realize, hey, it's okay to find women attractive. Does it, it's like, it doesn't give you the right to touch them. Like, <laughs> and, and I don't know how, like, how we communicate that. Uh, culturally, I mean, it's, I thought, you know, it's, it's astounding that that is so hard to get across. Uh, and yet it is. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, it, it's really astounding. And in my book, so yeah, I've heard this from a lot of men, um, especially men in like the fifties and sixties who are like, how do I even flirt with a woman now in light of the me too movement? And the other thing about me and that maybe will come across in the book is like, I'm a very sexual person. I'm very sex positive. Um, and I have seen the Me Too movement in some little moments. And I don't want to say that it's the whole Me Too movement, but maybe the stories that tried to associate themselves with the Me Too movement. Um, but I think maybe they shouldn't have became sort of a puritanical sex panic. And I would not want to see it devolve into that. Um, I am queer. I I'm very supportive of like cruisy spaces. I go to bars sometimes and flirt. And, you know, sometimes I go to bars and a straight man who I'm not necessarily interested in has flirted with me. That's not in the book because that's just adult behavior. We're sexual beings. We need to flirt with each other in order to eventually have sex. That's how it happens, right? You have to let someone know you find them attractive. (laughs) 
Um, but I think every instance that you read about in this book sometimes may have started with flirting, but then there's a really clear point where the line of consent is crossed. And there's one instance in this book where I was 19 and I was hanging out with a man was probably 30 years old in his apartment. And he was like, um, part of a poetry slam. He was like a poetry slam leader in the poetry slam community. And he had invited me over to edit my poetry and to read poetry together. And I accepted this as sort of a mentorship offer. He knew my girlfriend. He knew I was a lesbian. I'd been, I knew him for quite a while. So I went over and then we read poetry. We did some editing and then I drank wine and then he invited me to watch a movie. And I decided to watch a movie with him because it's a movie I really liked. And he tried to kiss me while we were watching the movie. And I told him I didn't want to kiss him. And I was a little confused and I, and he was very drunk. He was actually drunker than I was. And I was like, no, you know, I don't like this. And I asked him to stop and he stopped for a second. And then he leaned over and tried to kiss me again. And I actually wrote in the book, even if it had stopped there, this wouldn't be going in the book. But what then happened when I rejected his advances again, was he shoved me over, held me down. And then I got up and then he grabbed my ankle and held onto my ankle with both hands as I was trying to get away. So that goes in the book. That's a very clear line where consent was crossed and where I actually began to panic and wonder if he was going to try to actually rape me. Yeah. And that's interesting where you said that like, like consent. Yeah. Like it, and, and there can still be consent and it, and things be awkward and, and people have a negative experience and yet it's not, it doesn't go in the book because, it, because it's not traumatic. He hasn't done something right. malicious. It's like, he tried to kiss me twice. He was drunk. I said no twice. Was it annoying? Yes. Would I have preferred he didn't do it a second time? Yes. But I'm still not putting it in the book because it's not like, I don't think he's a monster for doing that. I don't think it's something traumatic that, and I don't think it's necessarily sexist. I think it's like bad human behavior. But when he starts to feel so entitled to my body and affection that he feels like he can grab me and force me against my will, that's when I think it's um, completely sexist behavior and it goes in the book. It's interesting because I... in the tone of the book, you definitely come across as sex positive. You don't come off as very judgmental either. And and you don't come off conversationally as really angry. I mean, like there are moments of anger, obviously, mm-hmm. like, but you, you come off as, as a person that still, yeah, again, that's just, that's not, you don't come across as, as, if, as, as anger isn't a dominant theme uh, in the book. So are you like, are you angrier than I think you are? <laughs> I don't know how to ask that, but like you just, you generally come across despite the honest way you look at injustices in our society in, in personal ways and, and in profound systemic ways, you, you still, you, you, you come across as a person that, that is, is joyful. Oh, thank you. Um, I hope as an author that I am using a little bit of discipline and trying to utilize the better parts of myself to the max. Um, so hopefully I didn't want this, the tone of this book to be rage and anger, even though I do write about times when I was enraged and became even assaultive in my twenties toward men. Um, I think I am probably angrier than you think I am. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know you incredibly well, so that's fair. But it also, um, there's also a numbing effect that all of this has, you know, the fact that since I wrote this book, I think two women who I'm close to have been raped and, my partner has been sexually assaulted, like groped in public and chased multiple times. And I've been groped and it, you know, that it just keeps happening at some point 
it's just really sad. You know, when I was in my 20s, I was very angry and I was afraid and I was aggressive. And I am still angry, but now I feel sort of sad and I just want it to stop. And I just want women to start being treated like humans who are deserving of equal dignity. What's the... I mean, you've mentioned a little bit about men reacting. I'm just interested in general, the difference between your male and female reader. Is is there a difference in reception? I mean, how is that? Because, I mean, you already said you've, you know, that one of your mentor you have is very supportive. I mean, is there a difference in the way that male and female readership have received it? Oh, completely. It's almost black and white. I think, um, I don't think I've received any skepticism from any woman who's read this book whatsoever. Um, and I think men who read the book, well, I won't say I, I haven't actually gotten any skepticism from men who have read the book, but I've gotten a lot of skepticism from men who haven't read the book, who have heard about the book. Um, and they want to argue with me online or they want to argue with me through mutual friends. Um, when men read the book though, they are shocked. And most, for the most part, the men who have talked to me have been shocked and angry. Um, and the women who have read the book have, most of them have said to me, I could also write this book. And even when I hear from my male friends, one of my male friends has been talking about the book to men and women because he's read it and he's shocked and angry about it. And he told me, you know, what's really frustrating is when I try to talk to men about this, they say, you're just an unlucky woman. They think this is just about something that happened to you specifically, but it's not normal and it doesn't happen to most women. And all the women I talked to about it told me they could have written this book themselves as well. My wife would say the same thing. I I, I think my wife would say the same thing. And that, I kind of read it in that vein. I like, I thought this sounds like a normative woman's experience. Like, I, I, in the mean, in the mean part, the median part of the curve. Like, uh, you know, like, yeah, I mean, I, th- and I, th- it doesn't surprise me that most women would say, yeah, we, we've all got probably a hundred vignettes if, yeah. if we sat and thought about it. Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. Sure. And I that's mean, why I, mean, I wrote it. So, I mean, well, how much discipline did it take also? Because I think, you know, my wife would say, you know, for every, I mean, it's almost like you learn the filter. It happens. Like, you know, I, I mean, was it, did it take discipline to like recount all that? Because it's like, you get so used to this stuff because it, it again, it's sadly not all that unusual. I mean, is it sort of like, do you have to sensitize your filter? Like, okay, I want to recall this. I gotta, I really gotta, has there been, or, or do you think it's all been pretty fresh or have, or have you had to jog your memory for stuff? Yeah, because it happens so much. The thing is when things like this happen, well, I also have a, I have a very good memory. I have noticed this, that I I have, I seem to have a very good memory and it might become because um, I diary so often. Um, Also as a writer, I just, if anything sort of exceptional happens in my day or week, I sort of replay it over and over and over in my mind and try to remember exactly what happening. And I also often write it down. Um, so these are, were not difficult things to remember. They're also stories I often tell men who are questioning me when I talk about sexism and they're like, well, I think that, you know, sexism isn't real basically, or, you know, everyone gets treated badly for different reasons. It's no worse for women. I usually will recount one of these stories and I've been telling these stories over and over for years. And I finally realized they don't really work as individual stories. I have to put them all together in order to make the point that I want. Um, and as far as my filter goes, unfortunately, when you sit down and write something like this, even, even though I'm just writing exactly what happened, I really had to put myself there in the moment. Um, and it was a very emotional and difficult experience. 
Um, it was re-traumatizing. And I, I ha- you have to put yourself in the moment, though, when you're writing beat for beat what happened and what people said just so that you get the timing and the tension correctly. So I had to go back through all of that. I wrote this very quickly in like eight or nine months, which is the quickest I've ever written a book. I think I just wanted it to be over with, honestly. Mm. Um, it was not a good experience writing it, and I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. It was not therapeutic. Um, and I did it because I just felt like I needed to write this and to get this out into the world. Do you, I mean, do you feel like emotionally things are getting less traumatic after writing? I mean, like, because you're talking about it all the time. I mean, I, I wonder just like, even though you've written it relatively quickly on your timing, I mean, you're still, you know, promoting it. You're talking about it, you're, you know, right now you're not at home. You're out, I'm sure do, doing promotion and stuff like, is it, is it sort of the continued pain because you've got to live with this book now and not just write it, but it's sort of your traveling companion for a while? No, it's actually not as difficult to talk about it or to read from it. The process of writing something, though, you really sort of have to reenact it in your mind over and over, even to write one piece. have to go back to the beginning and start over. As I'm writing just a couple of pages, I may relive the experience like four or five times in great detail. And you also bring up the emotion. Now that it's on the page, I don't have to do that really emotional work anymore. And I can I can talk about it. Um and it's not a traumatizing experience to go around and speak about the book or read from it. Thank does, does it become more like a dialogue partner, like because outside of you? Absolutely. I mean, I almost feel like it's a pamphlet. Like I keep looking at it because it's like right here. I almost feel like it's like a pamphlet I could hand to someone who's saying, well, how does sexism really negatively affect women? I sort of feel like I have this now. It's a really powerful physical object. And I almost feel like I could hand it to someone and say, read this and that will answer your question. I, I completely agree. I think the book is incredibly well suited to that. And, and again, sort of what I was beginning talking with you about, like the way you narrate this, it felt almost clinical. I mean, again, it, it was, it was very revealing and, and, and yeah, I think it would be a great thing for anybody. If people, you know, think that this isn't that common or, or if they just want to understand what, is going what you know what's going on for so many women i mean i think it's a place that is a great place to start thank you so much i mean i think there's one section of this that i often read when i'm you know at the bookstore doing readings that i read almost every time which is an incident that occurred um when i was 14 years old when a lighting technician who was in his mid-30s held me down and tried to rape me oh yeah yeah and this was an intense like physical attack that was completely out of the blue. Um, I had signed up to be tutored by this lighting tech at this community theater. As so many other kids had, I barely knew him. I was alone in a large building with him. There was only one other person in the building. And within a few minutes of my being alone in the lighting booth with him, I was 14 years old. All I'd said to him really was hello. He grabbed me, shoved me down, held me down and tried to rape me. Um, And writing about that was a really interesting experience because it had, even though it happened when I was 14, there were aspects of it that bled over into my adulthood because at first I didn't turn him in for several months until I found out that two other girls had also been assaulted by him. And we decided to turn him in together. And each of us only felt comfortable doing it if we were doing it together. And I was writing about this during the Me Too movement. And I thought, oh, how interesting that this is sort of a natural inclination that women feel more comfortable coming forward when they're together. Because one of the first thoughts I have had was that no one would believe me or 
They might think that I had flirted with him in some way, which were repeatedly taught. If you flirt with a man, then he can kind of do whatever he wants to you, um, which is something, you know, that E. Jean Carroll experienced, unfortunately, the woman mm. Um, mm. who wrote the book and, you know, was raped by Donald Trump and recently came out about that. Um, and then when we came forward and, you know, told we were all treated um, by the teacher that we told, like we were possibly a common denominator in this sort of experience. And if it happened to us again, that it would be our fault because I was told when I had volunteered to go get, pick up a table with a boy who I was friends with in my class. Do you really want to be alone in a room with another male? You don't want to get yourself in trouble again. So then I learned, Oh, well, if it happened to me once, Maybe it was his fault, but if it happened to me twice, then it's definitely my fault um, because I decided to be alone in a room with a boy, which is like I've been alone in rooms in a room with hundreds of men. Um, but, you know, he was there was an internal investigation. He was fired. And then a couple of years later, he was hired back because the firing and the investigation was handled so privately. And you went home in your 30s and he was still at the theater. I mean, like, as an right. adult. Like, so, so when I was 16, he was hired back. Then I told again, I had to turn him in again. And he was fired again from working with children. And then in my 30s in 2016, I went back home and I found out he had been back working there for almost a decade. You say something that was such an acute observation and horrifying. You said when he's holding you down, trying to rape you, that he kept giving instructions as if he was teaching to work the light board. And you figured, oh, he probably is doing this so that if somebody comes in at the theater, they'll hear him giving instructions and won't think anything of it. And I'm thinking, gosh, what a, a horrifying observation. It, 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 again, he's probably well-practiced at this. Yeah. So this is what, so a lot of the men in my book are just everyday men who are maybe taking part in microaggressions or some learned behavior. A few of them are serial sexual predators. And this man is a serial sexual predator, but he's also well-liked in my community. And I think that this was a really early lesson in how, you know, how tight-knit communities protect serial sexual predators if their prey is girls and women. Um, and what happened when he was holding me down and still talking about the lights I think in retrospect, and I've only realized this recently while writing it, that that was the purpose that it served was there was one other person in the theater. And if they walked by the room, they would hear him teaching me the lights and think nothing was wrong. But the effect it had on me in the moment, it's so weird because you hear sexual assault survivors. A lot of people hear them talking about things and they say they sound crazy. I don't believe that. I don't understand how they could have reacted that way. When it was happening, it made me wonder if what he was doing, it's hard to explain, but I was 14 years old and it was so strange and unexpected. I kept thinking this can't be happening. I questioned whether or not it was really happening because he was talking about the lights. It was so surreal that it made me actually question myself and wonder if maybe I was interpreting his actions incorrectly. And this all happens really quickly, but he grabs your, my ankle, he caresses it, he pulls me in and he's still talking about the lights. And I'm thinking, Oh, maybe he went to re meant to reach past me. Maybe he wants me to move because he needs to grab something near me, you know, and it, it takes a minute. You sort of freeze and go through all of these states of denial, especially as a child. So I think that that action had like a twofold um, result. It also caused, you know, me to be very stunned and feel like the situation was surreal and not know how to react. 
yeah, and it's it's interesting that like the the reality like you even say that you got away and then he says stop and you're like I stopped and you're like I don't know why but I did I mean it, it's all these things that there's this weird power that he has just as being older male and authority and and, and catching by surprise that like that is is it's hard to get your your mind around like you're you're trying to figure it out yourself like why why am i doing this and yet you're right it it seems uh i'm sure that that your story is not unique in that sense people feeling that way right so that's something else like there are a few instances in this book where it's like if you haven't been in this situation you might not understand that reaction but a lot of these are defensive reactions so i got out from under him eventually and i ran to the ladder and he yelled stop wait and i stopped and i waited And I I don't really know why. I remember what the feeling was, but it's this very visceral feeling of like, you just sort of automatically do it. But I was also terrified of him. So when when you're in situations where people are sort of holding you against your will, you think something kicks in where it's like not obeying may cause them to become aggressive and escalate. There's also the very last piece in this book, uh, a Lyft driver has stopped the car and has been sexually harassing me in the car for about 15 minutes. And, you know, I try to get out of the car, but the doors are locked. And this was when I was 36 years old. This was last year. And he turns and starts showing me women's underwear on his phone. And he says that this is his company and he's going to start selling women's underwear. And I'm trying to open the door and I know he can see it and he's not unlocking the door. And I feel panicked. But at the same time, I don't want to acknowledge that he's holding me against my will. And I didn't write about this in the book. I just wrote what happened. But I didn't want to acknowledge it. I took his phone and I looked at women's underwear and I was very nice to him. And I was like, oh, okay. Oh, women's underwear. Because, because, you know, and then people might say, well, you weren't being clear with him and you weren't telling him, let me out. I don't like this. But it's like, if I'm trying to open the door and the man can clearly see I'm trying to open the door, what's going to happen? What if I say, let me out now? Like, I'm worried that he's going to just drive away with me and rape and kill me. When you're being held against your will like that, you start to sort of negotiate in your head, like what are the risks here? And if you go along with it, a lot of times the situation will deescalate. If you, there is this thing where like, you don't really want to acknowledge to them that you know what's happening because once it's acknowledged, then it will become even more violent and scary than it already is. So uh, what's next writing wise for you now that you had this pretty emotional journey with this memoir? I mean, what, Is there, I mean, what feels like it's coming next for you? I am working on a new collection of short fiction right now, so I'm not quite sure what it's going to be. But I really prefer to write really poetic, stylized um, stories with a hyper focus on aesthetic. Um, So this is very different than anything I've ever written before. And I'm going back to writing more about um, class and more political issues as the subtext of like very stylized, dark, funny, kind of creepy short fiction again. And I'm very happy to be doing that. I like that. I'm very happy to be writing about dark, creepy stuff. (laughs) That's great. It's a lot lighter than what I just did. Well, I, I, again, I, I couldn't say enough good about 100 Times, A Memoir of Sexism. It's uh, incredibly well-written. Thank you for taking the emotional journey to write it and for spending some time talking about it with me. Yeah, thank you so much, Scott. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email. Or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. 
Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Shavisa for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book, 100 Times You Won't Regret It. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.